0: hi everyone it's a real joy and privilege to be able to share god's word with you again today we continue with our sermon series through first peter and today we come to first peter chapter 4 and verses 12 to 19. one of the bible commentators that i used for this study entitles this section final thoughts about suffering for christ which is a really good description Peter has already had a number of things to say about suffering for being a Christian, but now he comes back to this topic one last time in his letter before moving on to some final subjects. And what he has to say here, I believe, is really crucial for us. Let's have a look. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer, or thief, or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. This is God's word. This is quite a difficult subject for us to look at for various reasons. And one of the reasons is that most of us at the moment are not undergoing the kind of persecution that Peter envisages. That doesn't mean that these verses have no relevance for us. We'll see that they certainly do but it does mean that some of the things that we look at today are going to be things that we need to store away in the back of our minds for a later date. And because of that, I would like to expand this topic slightly and not just speak about suffering as a Christian, but also how to approach more general sufferings as a Christian. How to face cancer as a Christian. How to face retrenchment as a Christian how to face death as a Christian. So throughout the sermon, I'm going to speak about persecution and suffering, and we'll look at some of the applications to both of those situations as we go along. Peter gives us some do's and don'ts when it comes to suffering for being a Christian. There are three don'ts and six do's, And behind those, there is also a great theological framework that holds all of those together. Uh, This sermon actually has nine points and four sub-points, and so we're going to spread it over two weeks. But I think that it's worth going through these verses slowly, because Peter makes some very important points that are vital for us in our Christian lives. Firstly, When it comes to suffering as a Christian, Peter says, Don't be surprised. Verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. As a family, we've been praying our way through the 50 countries where it is most difficult to be a Christian. I've been sending out some of these on the WhatsApp too, but we're a few countries ahead of you at the moment. And this past week we had a look at the Maldive Islands where less than 1% of the country are Christian. Just a few thousand Christians in the entire nation. The Maldives is a Muslim country ruled by Sharia law. It is illegal to be a Christian. If you convert to Christianity you are stripped of your citizenship. Just owning a Bible can lead to imprisonment and there are no complete Bibles in their native language in any case. And here's the part that brought it home to me this past week. On the bio of the country that we read from Open Doors, it said this, There have been cases where spouses have only discovered after years that they are both active Christians, as they had hidden their faith from one another. Living in South Africa at the moment, we are so used to our Christian freedom that we tend to think that it is normal. But it is not. Quite the opposite, in fact. We live with abnormal freedom. And suffering for being a Christian is the rule, not the exception. In at least 50 countries in our world today, Christians are undergoing a fiery trial. And Peter tells us that actually, this isn't anything strange. Peter had heard Jesus speak about this on numerous occasions. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends the twelve disciples out on a short-term mission trip. He famously tells them to proclaim the kingdom of heaven is near, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. But then he goes on to say the following, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly, I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man returns. And on the night before his death, in John chapter 15, he said this, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If we truly seek to follow Jesus, we will experience persecution. And even more general suffering is normal and natural, in the sense that it is part of living in a fallen world. Some people have the idea that if I am a Christian and if I love God, then nothing really horrible will happen to me. Horrendous things happen in the world, but if I'm a Christian, slightly bad things may happen, but nothing too horrific. And even if something bad does happen, it will just be temporary and then I can get back to normal life. That's just bad theology. And the problem is that when suffering does come, these folk have double pain. There's the pain of the suffering itself, and there is the pain and shock and surprise and disorientation that they are suffering at all. What is going on? Is God punishing me? What have I done to deserve this? No, Peter says we live in a world where evil, sin... Suffering and opposition to Christianity are the realities of life. Therefore, such fiery trials are not to take Christians by surprise, but are to be expected. Don't be surprised. Secondly, Peter says that when suffering and persecution comes, don't be ashamed. Verse 16, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. In the honour and shame cultures into which Peter is writing, it was indeed disgraceful to abandon the traditional gods and follow Christ exclusively. But Peter says, don't be ashamed. And Peter has a particular sympathy for us when he writes this. Remember that Peter knew what it was like to be ashamed of Christ. On the night before Jesus' death, Peter had strongly denied three times, with curses, that he even knew Jesus. He'd been frightened by a little servant girl. And Peter says here, in effect, I know what it's like. I've been there, and I've failed. And I want to urge you, don't be ashamed of Christ. Thirdly, Peter tells us, don't meddle. In the rest of this passage, we're going to have a look at a number of blessings that come upon us when we suffer, but these blessings do not come in every kind of suffering. Verse 15 If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. There is a type of suffering that comes to us when we go against God's commands, even as Christians. And Peter wants to spare us that. Yes, of course, there is God's grace. But if we cheat on our income tax or we cheat on our wife, we are going to experience suffering. Sometimes there are huge and unpleasant consequences to our actions. And notice, too, that it needn't be anything big. Peter points out that it is possible to suffer as a meddler someone who has an inordinate interest in the affairs of others. I know of people, not within our own congregation, I hasten to say, but folk who are difficult and prickly and unteachable. And when you gently point out their actions and the effects that their actions are having on others, they become horribly defensive and believe that they must be suffering for the sake of the Gospel. But in reality, they are not suffering for the offence of the gospel. They are suffering because they are offensive. And Peter wants us to make sure that we are truly suffering for our faith and not for our failings. So, three don'ts when it comes to suffering. Don't be surprised, don't be ashamed, and don't meddle. But Peter goes on to give us a number of things that we are to do when we face suffering. The first seems very counterintuitive. He says that we are to rejoice. Verse 13. But rejoice. Is Peter suggesting here that when persecution or suffering come our way, that we put on a happy face? Is he suggesting that when suffering comes, we automatically smile and say, Praise God. No, we can't just take these words out of context. There's another important word that we should not omit here. Peter actually says, but rejoice that. And this little word that is a purpose word. But rejoice because, but rejoice for, but rejoice since. We don't rejoice in suffering and persecution itself. Rather, we rejoice because of four things that Peter tells us are true about Christian suffering. Number 1. When we face persecution and suffering, we can rejoice because we participate in the sufferings of Christ. Verse 13. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. The New Testament often describes how our lives as Christians are united to the life of Jesus. So Christ died for our sins, which means that if we are united to him, we die to an old way of life. Christ was raised from the dead, and so when we are united to him, we too are raised to a new life in him. But what this verse is saying is that our lives as Christians are so tied to the life of Jesus that not only are we united with him in his death and resurrection, but we are united to his whole pattern of life, which includes suffering for doing good. In fact, when we are prepared to suffer for the sake of Christ, it is an evidence that we truly do belong to him. But I think that there's more to this, too. Pastor Tim Keller points this out in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. In Acts chapter 9, we read about the conversion experience of Saul, later known as Paul. He's on the road to Damascus, off to persecute and imprison Christians, when there is a blinding light from heaven, and Saul hears the voice of Jesus asking, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? In other words, Jesus so identifies with his people that he shares in their suffering. When they are hurt or in grief, so is he. In this verse, Peter puts it the other way round and speaks about us sharing in Christ's suffering, that we and he suffer together. Now, Peter doesn't mean that our suffering somehow earns our salvation. He's already made that clear in the rest of the letter. Christ died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. But because we're connected to Christ through the Holy Spirit, we have fellowship with Jesus in his sufferings. Another writer sums up what Peter tells us here like this, The book of Hebrews tells us that Christ learned humanhood from his suffering, and therefore we learn Christhood from our suffering. Just as Jesus assumed human likeness through suffering, so we can grow into Christ's likeness through suffering, if we face it in faith and patience. That's why Paul can say in the book of Philippians, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Joseph Tson was a Romanian pastor who stood up to Ceausescu's repression of Christianity. He was arrested and imprisoned several times in Romania during the 1970s and was finally exiled from the country in 1981. He knows what he is speaking about when he writes this. This union with Christ is the most beautiful subject in the Christian life. It means that I am not a lone fighter here. I am an extension of Jesus Christ. When I was beaten in Romania, he suffered in my body. It is not my suffering. I only had the honour to share his sufferings. Peter had experienced this kind of joy personally. In Acts chapter 5, we read how the apostles meet together in Solomon's colonnade at the temple and perform many miracles so that the Jewish religious leaders are jealous and have them arrested. An angel of the Lord releases them from prison, which caused no end of consternation because all of the prison doors stayed locked, and he tells them to go back to the temple and tell the people about this new life, which they do and they are promptly rearrested. And the Jewish ruling council command the disciples not to preach in the name of Jesus, which they refused to do. And so they are whipped, probably with the dreadful 39 lashes that the Jewish religious authorities were allowed to give out. And Luke, who is telling the story, tells us the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing, because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. They had shared in Jesus' sufferings. This week, when you feel excluded from a group of friends because you won't go to the same place as they go or do the things they do, you share in the sufferings of Christ, who also endured the suffering of rejection. Number two, when we face persecution and suffering, we can rejoice, knowing that our joy will overflow at Christ's return. Verse 13, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. We spoke a moment ago about how our lives are united to Christ's life so that we experience what he experienced. The promise here, then, is that if we suffer like Jesus suffered, then we too will enter his glory with great joy. Back in chapter 1, we read about the Spirit of Christ in the prophets who predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. If we suffer with Christ now, we will share in his glory later. In a couple of weeks' time, we'll come to chapter 5, where Peter says, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. It's the same pattern. If we suffer for a little while now, we will share in Christ's eternal glory. In fact, our theme for this series has been, then, after suffering glory. But look again at what Peter says here in verse 13 Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Perhaps, then, our theme should really be after joy overjoy. Because there is joy now, knowing that we are united to Christ and that our sufferings are not meaningless. But oh, the joy that we will experience in eternity after we have suffered for a little while. Perhaps you've been given the burden of arthritis to bear for 10 years. Perhaps you've been a widow for 15 years. I heard about a 17-year-old teenager who'd spent 13 years of his life in hospital due to complications that he had after falling down a flight of stairs. And when he was asked whether he thought God was being fair to him, he replied, God has all eternity to make it up to me. Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Number three, when we face persecution and suffering, we can rejoice because we are blessed. Verse 14, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. We saw this back in chapter three, where Peter said, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Jesus himself told us this in the Sermon on the Mount, in what we call the Beatitudes, Uh, not one of the Beatitudes that we often focus on, but towards the end, Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We've just spoken about a joy that will be ours in the future, But there is also joy and blessing now, even in the midst of persecution and suffering. Samuel Rutherford was a Scottish Presbyterian pastor, theologian and author, who lived in the 1600s. He sometimes found himself in what he called the cellars of affliction. But he said of these cellars of affliction, the great king keeps his wine there. In other words, there was blessing to be had in the darkness of suffering that could not be experienced in the light of ordinary life. The Baptist pastor of the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon, put it this way, they who dive in the sea of affliction bring up rare pearls. Malcolm Mugridge was a British Christian journalist who died in 1990. Towards the end of his life, he wrote this, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence, has been through affliction and not through happiness. How many of us have not learned some really important lessons during this time of lockdown, things that we wouldn't have learned under other circumstances? The Apostle Paul probably put it best in Second Corinthians chapter 12. There he speaks about being given a thorn in the flesh. We have no idea what this was, but it was something that caused Paul pain and distress, something that he wished he didn't have. And yet he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weakness, in insult, in hardship, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong." Paul knew that there was a measure of blessing that he received in suffering and persecution that was just not available when everything was plain sailing. Number four. When we face persecution and suffering, we can rejoice because the Spirit of glory and God rests on us. Verse 14. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of god rests on you i grew up reading books about christians who suffered for their faith uh, books like tortured for christ by richard Wurmbrandt, that tells of his experiences in romania uh, vanya the story of ivan moiseev a soldier in the soviet army who refused to give up his faith despite the most horrific persecution This was during the 1980s, during the height of the Cold War, and I was convinced that the Russians were going to take over the world, and that one day I too would be imprisoned and tortured. And I always wondered, and sometimes still do wonder, how would I cope? How could I endure suffering for Christ? Here is the answer. In that moment, just when I need Him, the Spirit of Glory, and of god will rest on me some of you may be familiar with the book the hiding place written by corrie ten boom who was a dutch christian uh, sent to ravensbruck concentration camp because she and her family hid jews in their home during world war II. and near the beginning of the book she describes how as a little girl she went with her mother to see a family whose little baby had died and she saw the pale, still person in the crib, and she was sick and scared for the rest of the day. And that night, as she lay in bed, she waited for her father to come home and kiss her goodnight. And when he came in, she grabbed onto him, and she held him tight, and she sobbed, I don't want to die. I don't want you to die. I don't want anyone in our family to die. And her dad asked what this was all about. And Corrie's sister, Nolly, told him about what they'd seen that morning. And Corrie's father said to her, Corrie, when we go to Amsterdam on the train, when do I give you your ticket? And Corrie sniffed a few times and then she said, Why, just before we get on the train? And her father said, Exactly. And our wise father in heaven knows when we're going to need things too. Don't run out ahead of him, Corrie. When the time comes that some of us will have to die, you will look into your heart and find the strength you need just in time. The book of Second Timothy is Paul's very last letter. It's a very moving letter. Paul writes this letter to Timothy while he is in prison on trial for his life. Paul only has a few months left to live. And in chapter 4, you get a sense of his loneliness, even disappointment. He writes this about the legal trial he has already had to undergo. At my first defence, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Jesus was there just when Paul needed him. And you know, this applies not just to persecution, but also to suffering. Pastor John Piper points out in one of his sermons that if you receive the suffering of cancer as a Christian, if you desire to honour Jesus in that situation and not bring reproach to his name, then that is not essentially different from facing persecution. In both those cases, the question is, will I turn against Jesus in anger or will I trust him? So if you receive suffering from persecution or from cancer with the prayer and the hope that Christ will be magnified through this, then this promise is for you. The spirit of glory and of God rests on you. As a pastor, I've often had the privilege of being with people during the last few weeks or days of their lives. It's often an extremely difficult time for the family. The person lies in bed, not moving at all, not responding, just breathing. And if you sit with them long enough, your breathing begins to match their breathing, and any variation in their breathing, any catch of the breath, and you think that it's the end. And this goes on for days, even weeks or months. And those are the good cases where people are not in pain or distress. Often people wonder, and sometimes they have the courage to express the thought, what is the point? Why can't God just take them? Why do they have to suffer like this? The pain and the indignity and in those times i remind myself and i remind the family 2 corinthians chapter 4 though outwardly we are wasting away yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all God is doing something deep and meaningful and intimate in those moments, even though I cannot see it, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on this person. Perhaps your fear today is not of being tortured to death for your faith, but of going through the torture of cancer treatment, or going through the torture of watching a loved one go through that. And you wonder, how will I cope? Again, to quote Caspar Ten Boom, don't run ahead of God. Just when you need it, his grace will be there. As John Piper goes on to say, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and will bring God's words to mind, whatever truth you need, whether little or much. He is the spirit who glorifies Jesus and in those moments will remind you of Jesus and make him real to you. He is the spirit of glory and will cause us to feel that the glory we are losing here is not worth keeping and the glory we are about to gain is infinitely better. He is the spirit of sonship so that by him we can cry, Abba, Father, he will assure us and reassure us that we are indeed his beloved children. If the opportunity arises in this trial to speak for Christ, to your doctor or to your persecutor, the Holy Spirit will bring to your mind what you need to say. Then John Piper says this, The Spirit will help you die. He will stand by you when there is no one else. He will sustain your faith. He will give you glimpses of glory. He will cause you to magnify Christ in your death. Courage which you never thought was possible will be yours. The spirit of glory and of God will rest upon you and carry you home. There are actually still another five points to go in this passage, but we'll come to the second half of the sermon next time. This seems like an appropriate place to end. Peter says that when persecution and suffering comes, when, not if, When it takes place, we should not be surprised. We need to expect it and prepare for it now. We should not be ashamed. We should not meddle. We should suffer for the right reasons. And we should rejoice. Not rejoice at the suffering itself, but rejoice in what it demonstrates and achieves. We participate in the sufferings of Christ. Our joy will overflow when he returns. We are blessed. The spirit of glory and of God rests on us in those moments. This means that in this week that lies ahead, we could face a violent terrorist or a ventilator with utter calm and peace. Most good Baptist sermons consist of three points and a poem. We've had much more than three points, but let me at least give you a poem. This is a poem that was written by the Presbyterian missionary to China, E.H. Hamilton, back in 1931. He wrote this poem shortly after hearing the news of the martyrdom of one of his colleagues, John Vinson. John and his wife were based at a mission station in Haichao in China, and John had gone to visit a village 18 miles away, which was then uh, hijacked by about 600 bandits. A small Chinese girl, who escaped from the bandits, related what had happened. ''Are you afraid?'' the bandits asked Vincent, as they menacingly waved a gun in front of him. ''No,'' he replied, with complete assurance. ''If you shoot, I go straight to heaven.'' His decapitated body was found a bit later. And on the basis of that incident, Hamilton wrote this poem. Afraid? Of what? To feel the spirit's glad release, To pass from pain to perfect peace, The strife and strain of life to cease? Afraid? Of that? Afraid? Of what? Afraid to see the Saviour's face, to hear his welcome and to trace the glory gleam from wounds of grace. Afraid of that? Afraid of what? A flash, a crash, a pierced heart, brief darkness, light, O oh, heaven's art, a wound of his, a counterpart. Afraid of that? afraid of what to enter into heaven's rest and yet to serve the master blessed from service good to service best afraid of that afraid of what to do by death what life could not baptize with blood a stony plot Till souls shall blossom from the spot, afraid of that. Praise God that in the worst persecution, in the worst suffering, we have nothing to fear. Amen.